Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Syntech Podcast, where today we're talking mass transit with Fernando and first-time guest Andrew, who is so excited for this, he is literally wearing a bike helmet. Andrew, welcome to the pod. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Fernando. Thanks for having me on, guys. I am super excited to talk about mass transit. I am a, a huge transit enthusiast. I actually lived, believe it or not, in Orlando and in South Bend, Indiana, without a car and um, survived. And I'm happily to say I just moved to Chicago where it's a bit easier to get around. So there you have it, a real life mass transit enthusiast. Fernando, hello again. You know, I feel like there's a lot of our friends who will be excited to hear us talk about mass transit, which says a lot about of how cool people we hang out with, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and of course, I'm Ethan. So today, we want to discuss what we know about the quality of transit in America, how we got to this point, um, and potential improvements and alternatives. So let's kick it off with where we are right now in mass transit. I live in Cincinnati, and let me say, our mass transit is terrible. I made it 30 days taking the bus and to work, and uh, eventually got so frustrated with the infrequency of rides and the poor network. I found that because it was a hub-and-spoke model, if I wanted to do something after work and I rode the bus to the suburbs, like to play basketball, the only way to get home was to take the bus back downtown and take another bus back to where I live. And that was just way too much, and now I drive to work every day, and I, I would rather be taking mass transit, but there's no option. So what's the deal? Uh, why is it so frustrating? Yeah, so I, I actually grew up in, so I grew up in North Texas, where it's it's not known for a as a as a transit um, heaven by any stretch of the imagination so it i grew up actually driving and being really frustrated with cyclists on the road and other people who weren't who weren't driving there i I uh, drove a suburban actually so quite a big car so it's been a long ways for to me to come to a point where i even really enjoyed mass transit or biking or i would say walking but hopefully I, i always enjoyed walking um <laughs> wait are we expected to enjoy walking <laughs> i'm not qualified for this part. <laughs> only driving only driving no walking jogging jogging any of any of those things um, but um yeah i i remember living in chicago for the first time when i was interning after my junior year at college and feeling just a sense of freedom being able to move around and being able to get around the city um, without having to to park a car or I guess I didn't ever really do maintenance on a car, but um, maintain this vehicle um, or, or, or or having, I guess, have to have, to have a place to, to put it or park it or pay for it or pay for gas or anything like that, um, which I think is quite contrary to, I think the, the stereotypical thing you hear about car ownership is that it is freeing, right? It's that you can go anywhere you want, whenever you want. Um, and it was, it was weird that I found the opposite to be true um, when I lived downtown in Chicago. So that was, I think, for me, kind of my first experience of understanding how how freeing transit could be, at least in, in, in my own experience. So I think talking about like the Dallas suburban area versus Chicago just kind of shows that often repeated quote in certain circles about we shape our cities and then our cities shape us, right? Like the way a lot of cities in Texas are, it would be less immediately practical to have a densely connected mass transit system like Chicago does or like New York does or Boston does because um, obviously Chicago has grown to be quite a sprawl, but the populate, like oh, it's much more densely populated than a lot of cities in the West and the South of the of the country. And so I think like when we talk about reasons that establishing mass transit is difficult, just uh, geographic factors and demographics kind of, or I guess more like population density factors are something that kind of cripples us from the start in certain areas. Also, what I read was, it's interesting you bring up cities in the, the South and the West. What I read was that you'll find the best mass transit systems in cities with the earliest street grids because in the time before cars mm -hmm. were something everyone had it made more sense to have very walkable and well-connected regular grids 
and that isn't so anymore so you have more winding grids where like adjacent streets aren't necessarily connected nearby and that makes it really hard to reach mass transit by foot and really hard for mass transit to have effective routes but you find like san francisco new york chicago these are some of the oldest cities that have uh grids that were made before everyone had cars and i thought that was a really interesting point yeah uh if you look at the u.s cities with the highest ridership of mass transit although that's obviously affected by just how many people live there things like that um almost the out of the top 24 only chicago and minneapolis are not in um the original colonies or in california so i because those like the west and the south again developed and got populated uh, much later on as cars were um becoming more commonplace and i think that kind of it's no surprise it's no surprise that the oldest cities if you think of good mass transit systems in the u.s you probably think of new york uh boston and chicago maybe off the top of your head and i don't think that's should be surprising to us yeah and it's interesting you bring up how regions are tied to I guess we could say effective transit systems in that like by and large they're in the Northeast and you noted California. Um, and like what, I guess from a regional perspective, what culture has to do with mass transit. Um, and I also want to note we had talked about how some of the oldest cities have uh, the most effective, I guess, mass transit systems or highest ridership in Los Angeles. Actually, I, I, b- I believe, although I can't say for 100% certainty, um, had a larger streetcar network, so a streetcar network, um, than New York City at one point in time, and it was all torn up. So That's crazy. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of mass transit, even if it did exist, um, depending on, uh, I guess, the region or the culture, the decisions that were made, the policy that are implemented, um, have gone away. And a lot of times... They, the tracks for streetcars are just paved over. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to, to, if you go back and dive a little bit into the history about um, not only the oldest cities, but thinking about kind of what decisions were made in certain places, um, depending on, I guess, who was the decision maker at the time. So, What I read about the streetcars was um, streetcars were originally designed to in many cities not all of them but in many cities they were designed to run without cars on the road Mm -hmm. and so their schedules were predicated on that and as more and more people had cars it slowed down the streetcars and they were unable to make their schedules and over time that led to streetcars basically being cut from cities and that was a big reason why streetcars in cities that used to have a lot of them are no longer around that's interesting that we you say that because you loop back to today and we're in a place now where uh, I guess trans advocates or enthusiasts are are really fighting for uh, like bus rapid transit lanes or bus only lanes, mm-hmm. um, and back almost to a point where the you have exclusive right away from a, a transit vehicle where cars can't can't uh, can't drive in because yeah it, it doesn't make sense if you have I remember being in I remember being in L A and riding a train from the airport to downtown and I remember stopping at a stoplight and I thought my God, this is crazy. I'm on a train. Why am I stopping at a stoplight? Yeah. It, blew, it blew my mind. It absolutely <laughs> blew my mind. Yeah, that's that's interesting because uh, when you see anything that has to follow the, the regular uh, street signals, it's hard for it to be faster than mm-hmm. cars. And so Cincinnati recently installed a streetcar. Public sentiment is pretty negative about it. Uh, <laughs> I've never actually been on the thing, so I, I guess I can't offer a fully educated opinion, but... I do know that I can walk from the end to uh, from the two ends of the streetcar route faster than the streetcar goes there. <laughs> so it's like, what what could possibly be the purpose unless? And I'm just Ethan's really not busy. even an enthusiastic walker, as we heard. No, I don't even <laughs> like walking, but I do like my time. Yeah, no, but it, it's interesting you bring up. I didn't know about the the streetcar in Cincinnati, but um, there's also recently a streetcar in in Detroit that was that was just built. And today, I feel like. The sentiment I get is that streetcars are super sexy, um, and that they they help with. I think they they'll improve real estate values around the area. Like they're used as a tool for development, which is a which is part of transit. I mean, transit is a tool for development. Um, but I feel like today people 
a lot of places are doing it because it's like a sexy thing to do, but it doesn't actually, it's not actually effective, which is like the whole point of <laughs> getting from, uh, getting from A to B, it doesn't actually do that well, but it makes the corridor maybe nicer um, and brings in private investment, which isn't, I'm not going to say isn't a, isn't a bad thing, um, but it's interesting that that's your experience uh, with <laughs> the streetcar in Cincinnati is, is one that's not, not effective, I guess, from getting it also It also connects areas that are fairly affluent. It connects what are probably like two of the biggest bar areas in Cincinnati and also mm-hmm. goes through the central business district. Yeah. So it's not, uh, it's not this like democratization of transportation that some people might dream of with these things. It's, it's very particularly picked out where it goes. Yeah. Which, which is also another, uh, a point on the, the kind of social, I don't want to say social implications, but the, the demographics that that ride transit and 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 how these projects get built so there's actually the purple line which is in north of uh, dc runs through um a, a quite affluent neighborhood and another neighborhood that is is not as well off um and there's actually a big fight over that line because people and i, I again and so don't quote me on this i'm not from from dc but from what i understand people in i guess the more affluent regions regions of dc were fighting it because it would connect them with a less affluent uh region of dc which also gets to uh, a lot of how um transit either can segregate or integrate communities from from different backgrounds i wonder how much of um i think it's very likely that the at least in many mass transit systems there's an association between um it being a form of transit for poor people and i think there's a very i mean it's generally cheap like you don't have to own a car to ride a train obviously and there's some data that minorities in the u.s take mass transit at a higher proportion and i'm not sure i think this would be difficult to prove one way or the other but do you think that's a sort of cultural and social pressure against embracing mass transit that some people feel like when you get to the point where you can have enough cars so that your family can go where they want, when they want, you've made it. And that's something to aspire to rather than being tied to the, um, you know, the schedule that, and the, rig- the rigidity of a mass transit system. Do you think that's a factor that makes a significant impact in reducing ridership? I think it, it definitely matters, but I'm not sure that it's like this American dream of owning a car. I mean, that probably matters. But I think a much bigger factor is that as transit in America has moved, maybe I shouldn't even say moved, like I don't know that it was ever recently not like this, but transit in America is very much associated with like the lower class. And it also is very hard to keep these these resources, basically like the stations and the cars, the the trains, whatever you use Mm -hmm. in like a nice condition there's a negative stigma of taking these things. Like people who are going to their white collar jobs are unlikely to take uh, buses that are, you know, the, what what these people see is like a very blue collar class or even like sometimes you see homeless people on buses. And so people don't think of this as like a comfortable commute. And I think that really does hurt mass transit. And one thing that I read about was this idea that maybe part of the problem in America is that we, we view mass transit as like, this way of helping the poor because it means we charge fares that are too low to actually maintain the mass transit system really well and it leads to this issue of like a lot of people don't want to take the bus because they have this stigma about it yeah i definitely think there's social factors at play and a lot of times you see communities that want trains or on streetcars right like there's what's there between a bus and a streetcar other than a streetcar is is i was gonna ask that it it looks it looks I yeah, it, it runs. It runs on the street, hence the name streetcar. Do and, all streetcars run on rails? Because like a lot of them are on a track. Um, most of the ones I've seen are on a track. Yeah. So it's um, like light rail. Uh, light. Oh. I mean, light rail is a bit different, but ah, okay, forget it. Yeah. The um, streetcar. In, this is a total aside, but the streetcar in San Francisco is wild compared to any other one that i had been on right because you like fly down a hill and it's like we're all gonna die it's it's like a wooden roller coaster it's crazy oh my goodness i was in san francisco and i made the poor assumption that the streetcar was just a complete 
free public utility hop on hop uh. off so i just hopped on the back when it was moving and got a, a <laughs> quite a stern talking to by a guy who wanted me to pay and i was entirely like completely surprised <laughs> that's understandable especially because it's pretty expensive it was like seven dollars i know when i was there i was like i paid a lot that's for this cheap. and i didn't even get the whole ride i just hopped on like halfway <laughs> i got ripped off also i not to derail us further but i have to do this when when I studied abroad and was in Germany, oh, one of my friends classic, got a ticket classic. for buying a child's ticket to the <laughs> transport. I forget what it was, bus or train or whatever. It was the train. But he couldn't read the German, the train, yeah. And so he was on there with a child's ticket. So, you know, be careful about that. Yeah. Make sure you are buying adult tickets to all your transportation needs. <laughs> I liked your use of derail there. I think that was really appropriate. Oh, that was. Um, yes. That was. No, I, to me. Yeah, so I, I do think part of it to get us back on track um, I think <laughs> I think part of it is, of course, there's some social stigma about taking the bus. I think definitely between bus and rail. I also think, to be frank, part of it is just how like ease of use. I think by and large, people just do what's most convenient. Um, and if it's a real pain to take the bus or you have to wait in the heat for 30 minutes or um, whatever it may be, then people will choose to do what is easiest for them unless they just absolutely, as you were talking a bit about, just can't afford it, right? If you can't afford a car or can't afford the car plus gas plus insurance. Um, yeah. So I, I I do think, like, yes, part of it clearly is social stigma, but I also think there's a lot of, I think a lot of it is just, is it is it easy to um, like get from A to B on transit? And, and there's interesting, I was actually talking to someone um, at the in the office the other day about kind of I guess part of its ease but also I guess that kind of fits into the ease of use conversation but um, how actually low gas prices here are in the US and they're around yeah. maybe like three I don't know I don't I haven't bought gas in years so I'm assuming it's around like three dollars Ethan you can probably it's like 270 right 270 now. Yeah. and gas prices in Europe are like eight dollars um, yeah so that, I mean, that's also, there's a huge gas, I mean, you subsidize um, gas to a level that, that doesn't happen in Europe. So, again, this, I don't but, think it's subsidized. I think it's heavily taxed in Europe. And that, that's oh, been a really? big policy difference over the last, like, 20 or 30 years. I don't, I don't know how long exactly it's been going on. But I remember reading about that. And that's a big reason why in Europe you see all these tiny cars. Um, the, this, like, in America, there's big public outcry if you're going to tax gas. Like, people yeah. want to tax the oil companies in, like, a vague way but as soon as they actually see gas prices <laughs> rise there's outcry yeah and in europe they haven't dealt with that in the same way i try to look a little bit into um if mass transit ridership increased in the 2000s as gas prices kind of spiked um and i didn't do a particularly rigor rigorous numerical analysis of it but the general impression i got is that it initially mass transit ridership initially did rise as gas prices were rising and as gas prices stayed relatively high. Like, I mean, I remember as a kid over $2 was like kind of unthinkable. So gas prices stayed relatively high and um, mass transit ridership stayed constant or maybe even dropped off of it towards the end of the decade. So I think that there's definitely, it is certainly tied to it. But the level of changes that we're seeing in the U.S. haven't been drastic enough to see significant changes in society. Like if our gas started being five or six or seven dollars a gallon, I'm sure there would be much more drastic changes. But going from two to three didn't seem to, for society as a whole yeah. didn't seem to change too much. One one claim I read uh, about why we don't focus very much on public transportation is the idea. Um, I mean, idea, the, the fact that like smaller, more rural areas are disproportionately represented at the congressional level because of the way that the Senate is set up, mm -hmm. right? So every state gets two senators and regardless of population. So these really rural states have just as much representation. So all in all, Hashtag you find the New Jersey that, compromise. Is that what that's called? Wasn't it? Constitutional convention? I don't, convention? I, I don't, I don't, I don't really read any history. <laughs> But the, the point of this being basically that we, we focus as a society less on cities and urban life than we should if, if we were like truly proportionately represented. 
because a large percentage of the population lives in cities, but that amount of effort is not pushed towards cities. Yeah, and that, that did make some sense to me. No, I think, I mean, you're talking about the national level. I think you can double that and say the state level as well. Um, I, because I was just living in India, I forgot the stat was, so I don't want to throw out a number, but it is some incredible, incredibly disproportionate, disproportionate, excuse me, amount of representation at the state level in Indiana comes from rural parts of Indiana. Um, and a, a lot of times it's the state DOTs that have a lot of influence and and power um, when it comes to when it comes to transportation, especially you see a lot of conflict between state DOTs and 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 sorry, when I say DOT, Department of Transportation um, and the city Department of Transportation. And a lot of times you you will see sorry, I'm saying that phrase again. Um, you'll see states that want to push like highways through major cities and cities who don't want the highway through the city. Um, uh. And and if you look at most major, I think every major American city has a highway that is that is that is through by and large the middle of it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's one. I mean, Manhattan has a highway around the edges, but I mean, if you look at New York, there clearly are highways through it, um, and that's that's usually not the case as much in Europe. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to state influence versus local influence. Um, and, and having probably less urban representation um, than maybe would be equal at the state level. So That's interesting. I would never have thought of that. That does make sense, though. Mm-hmm. I think Vancouver is the only city in North America that doesn't have a highway in, in it. Mm, Vancouver, my favorite city in North America. <laughs> maybe, it maybe it's related. One, one more reason to... I do love the Couve. That's a <laughs> the insiders call it. I've never been. I'll have to go someday, though. And, Syntax and, uh, field trip. Yeah, Syntax field trip. Yeah. Definitely can expense that. We can... <laughs> <laughs> it does have some pretty good uh, public transport. I, I took yeah. the... I don't know if they call it the rail or the train or whatever back from the airport. The boot? And it was pretty great. The boot? No, that's, that's not what they call it. <laughs> I hope I'm not. trying to throw, throw out random Canadian terms. It's Skytrain is what it's <laughs> called, I think. Ah, uh, that does that does ring yeah. a bell. No, yeah. I'm I'm a actually Vancouver. A fun fact for you, I believe has the largest autonomous public transit system in the world. So none of it is actually driven oh. by real people or real people. Very cool. It's driven by fake real people. people. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's driven by fake people, aka robots. Um, yeah, it, it was really cool because the way it was set up, I mean, it wasn't pristine. Like, it, it appeared to be an old train, but um, it was well-maintained. Yeah. And the whole way through the city, because you were raised up and the the uh, the car was designed to be all windows. So you were, like, seeing the city as you went through. And it was great as a tourist. Like, it was it was ideal. And you're, like, seeing the bay and, and the buildings around you. It was really cool. We should all model after Vancouver. No, I, I saw some news. They, I mean, Vancouver is a pretty progressive city. They had some ambitious uh, transportation goals, and I think they've they've by and large hit them early in terms of getting people to bike and to walk that old thing walking, mm-hmm. and and take bus and rail over driving. So yeah, their their bike network was really good. I I went there for a conference with a friend of mine, and we biked around a number of places, and we walked most of the places. Things that would not have been feasible in other cities of that size. Although we should note that Vancouver is like pretty well known by people, but it's not very large as cities go. Like as an American city, it's actually pretty small. Yeah, I think it's around the size of like Denver or something. It's not huge. Which helps. I, I think that probably helps them do these things because you always think with public transit, transit like. New York City can't afford to can't afford the downtime of like tearing up roads and stuff to build this, where some smaller cities might be able to. Yeah, well, New York. I mean, I feel like with places like New York, it just it becomes so. I mean, and that's a huge topic as well that I probably don't know enough about. But the cost of building transit in a place like New York, I think, say, so has finished the first phase of the Second Avenue Avenue subway in New York, and it was some obnoxiously large number per mile like um in terms yeah. of costs and and even in the u.s relative to because paris and london are also building out um their own 
their own transit system, and the cost is, is far lower in those countries. Um, and that's, I mean, that's another problem that, again, I don't have the expertise to speak to, but it, the cost of building transit in the United States is so high relative to other places. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. I'm, the Paris transit system, uh, did you go to, did either of you two go to Paris? I have been to Paris. Did you take the public transit? Yeah, I took the, the underground. Subway, whatever they call it. Whatever. It's like a bus. Metro. It's just like a bus underground. It has tires. It's so weird. It was really unusual. It, it uh, clearly left an impression with me. The tube, though, like man, we got a lot to learn from the, the tube. The gold standard, I believe, it's the um, the oldest like continuously operating mass transit system. And that seems. Oh, keep going. It's just mind blowing to me that like the it's like the maps. Everyone talks about the maps, like. They somehow do such a simple thing so much better than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they take Apple Pay too, which is just like, man, oh, wow. can't be any better than that. All cardless. Yeah. I think it is. I mean, we've already mentioned this once in this podcast. Like, it is very interesting that older transportation systems, cities that started earliest, actually have some of the best ones now, where that's not true with a lot of things because, you know, with, with a lot of innovation the most recent uh, entrant has like the most modern technology and it's the best because of this whole issue of like, you need to tear up infrastructure to build infrastructure. The places that got the head start actually seem to have the best. Yeah, the best, uh, the oldest um, intra-city mass transit, so essentially subways slash above ground rail in the US are Chicago, Boston, and New York, which are, I'm consensus among the best in the u.s uh, i think that speaks to that point so we've talked a lot about the history of mass transit and about what it's like right now in north america do we want to move on to where it's going what the alternatives are what we imagine could be important innovations in mass transit yeah so something i've seen as an argument against establishing new mass transit networks in the u.s and perhaps other places as well is that the future of transportation is going to be things like rideshare and then uh, potentially autonomous vehicles at some point. So establishing new networks is investing time, money, and space into something that'll just get in the way of those technologies. So it seems to me that there are kind of two diverging viewpoints on how transportation is going to look as we strive for you know less congestion, um, cleaner and safer roads and things like that. One track is these futuristic mass transit technologies such as Hyperloop, which is still, you know, being proven, high-speed rail, which is being established in several, many countries actually, but it's quite expensive to build that infrastructure. And then viewpoint number two is that we don't need those technologies because rideshare, aka Uber, Lyft, etc., and autonomous vehicles, and maybe other decentralized forms of transportation are the way of the future. Uh, do you guys agree that those, those are kind of the two sometimes conflicting ways of approaching the future of transportation? I don't, I don't know if I'd say, Fernando, if it's an either or, or if it's a both, right? So I think the future transportation isn't like a yes or a no, like it's, it will only be Hyperloops running everywhere or it will only be ubers and lyfts taking you everywhere but that it's everything right it's it's all of those modes coming together and i think that is one of the great parts of living right now i think there's a lot of like more transportation innovation than we've had in in decades i'd argue is that you have all of these new modes whether it's line bikes or whether it's hyperloops or whether it's the good old car or you know you're good you're, you're good two feet that you can you can get from A to B, and I think the challenge then becomes, how do you put all of these ways of getting around kind of in a, in a coherent package? I guess if you'd call it that. Right. So I think the obvious application for a hyperloop or a high speed rail is connecting major population centers that aren't particularly close. So you know, um, connecting major cities in the U.S., decreasing the travel times between them. I think perhaps one argument would be like if we were to install a high-speed rail from New York to Chicago, for example, the 
initial investment infrastructure would be so expensive that would it even be economically feasible when you can maybe get a flight at certain times of the week for $150 from New York to Chicago? Um, is it worth is it worth pursuing those types of things? Well, I think uh, some of these have the potential to be faster than flights, right? Especially people don't really think about this. I, I feel when I talk to people, it seems like they don't consider this. But the total time it takes to fly anywhere is like twice as long as the flight at minimum. It takes forever to do anything in an airport. So I, I think there's definitely a future here, especially for very time-sensitive people. I mean, some very time-sensitive people just take private planes, but... That is true. At some point, you're so time-sensitive, you're just very wealthy. <laughs> um do we want to talk a little bit about our experience with these varying modes of transport? Because, I mean, I think some of us have been on line bikes and been on those scooters that everybody was talking about for a while and stuff like that to put a little context around this conversation. Yeah. Uh, so line bikes, um, for those who have the misfortune of not living close to a city with line bikes, um, are a dockless biking station. Probably most of you have seen cities that have docks that you can like essentially check out of a dock or bikes rather that you can check out of a docking station, you pay, you know, a dollar per hour or whatever, and then you need to find another docking station to check it back in, and then you're no longer charged for the ride. So Lime Bikes and there's some other competitors that all seem to be kinda citrusy colored, and they have locks, automatic locks on the bikes. So you unlock it with your phone, um, with an app, and then uh, unlocks the bike, you go wherever you're going, and then you just lock the bike, and that ends your ride. You can put it, um, unless there's laws, I guess, prohibiting you from putting it somewhere, you can literally put it anywhere, and that's where your ride ends. So it becomes this very decentralized way of getting a bike, and there are, that's now expanded into scooters and maybe other things as well. Yeah, I think my experience in, in these new, I guess, new modes of transportation if I, I talked earlier about this story, I guess my own experience in Chicago feeling like transit was freeing for the first time in a way that it, it, I had never felt before. Um, I'd say maybe a, a year after that. So this is, a, this is far enough back that like Uber and Lyft aren't, are, are popular, but they're not what they are now. And I was visiting San Francisco and I remember within the span of a few days, I took the BART, I took Cowtrain, which is like the commuter rail in San Francisco. I took the bus and I took a lift. And I remember leaving feeling like, oh, like this is the future of transportation. Like I, I can have a mode for every type of trip that I need, right? If I need to go down to Palo Alto, I can take a, a commuter rail. I'm not going to take a lift all the way down there. I'm also not going to bike. Oh, I also biked. So um, I also walked. So that's, that's an important noted one. Um, so <laughs> that'll, the old classic walking from A to B and I don't know, for me, that was like another kind of, I guess, seminal moment in my, my, my trans, my transportation life of, of thinking. Oh, transportation transformation. Yes. My, <laughs> precisely my transportation transformation part, part B. So I would like to see some data on this, but my thought is in a city like San Francisco, um, I've experienced in Dallas where line bikes are available and there's a ton of traffic at certain times of the day. Like if it's very possible for a two ish mile trip to be quicker via bike than via car. Um, I don't think that's way out yeah. there to say. And I think that like has a lot of potential for being something that people will adopt. Cause ultimately like for the most part, that's what people want. As long as there's no like crazy Hills, and the ride oh, is I, I don't know. like a dollar. Like, I don't know if I agree with you, right? Because there's a lot of cases, especially in cities that have variable weather. So, I mean, this is an issue in Cincinnati, right? Like if I bike two or three miles, if I biked a mile in most of the summer, like I would get to my location just coated in sweat. And that's a big problem yeah. for people that are doing things yes. at work. That is, that is true. And there's also infrastructural problems. So I've tried to bike to work before here. And I, when I was an intern, I used to do it. And I would bike from maybe three to four miles outside of the city. And it took forever. Like three to four miles on a bike should be nothing. But I ended up traveling more like uh, more like probably seven or so. 
And if the city's just not set up for it, if it's on hills, if there's windy roads, that makes biking really difficult. I mean, I, I totally agree that you would want to bike if everything else were, uh, but if within, all your other options within downtown areas, a lot, a lot of times there's fewer hills, and I mean yeah. it's, it's pretty dangerous in cities that don't That's have good bike too. lanes. But it is quicker. Even when there are good bike lanes, I think I will always be a little bit wary of it, unless cities really slow down a lot. Yeah, no, I was I just biked actually through downtown Chicago a bit the other day, and I, I think for me this comes back to I think I short answer yes it is faster to bike sometimes than it is to drive due to due due to congestion, and I think this takes me a bit back to what I was talking about earlier is just what is again uh, accounting for weather if you're talking about Ethan but what's just easier for you to do right like is it is there infrastructure in place are there protected bike lanes are there bikes available um, for you to be able to to do this and again part of it's cultural but I think part of it too is getting away from this idea that it's it's uh, like so de facto that everyone wants to drive and that's everyone's choice and I think a lot of it is de jour and it's the way that infrastructure is built and the policies are set that that um facilitate kind of your own your own decision of what mode you want to to take i know i probably took that to maybe to overly macro level um but like yeah i not that people don't have free will and choice of course but i no, think that's so much of it is so much of it is is there even a bike lane to to bike on and yeah, it'd be like is. if there's not then the vast majority of people won't bike that's something we talk about a lot I feel like on, you know, the podcast and the website, like, it's easy to say, oh, if you care about, you know, being healthier and reducing pollution, then just bike to work. But, like, how are you going to say that if, as a city or whatever, you're not providing a safe way to actually execute that? Um, yeah. So I think it's all about all about the surrounding system. You can't yeah. ask people to change their behavior without other things changing around them. Right. Yeah, I, I have to uh, squeeze in a chance to talk about those scooters that everybody was obsessed with for a couple <laughs> weeks. I don't know if you guys heard, but it was like a big thing for anybody connected with San Francisco. And since I listen to a lot of tech podcasts, a bunch of people were talking about it. Um, so there are these scooters made, I think, by the same company as Lime Bikes that are uh like they have they have electric motors yeah, in them and so them. you just like fly around on the streets yeah but there are also dockless like the line bikes and you can just leave them wherever and so when i was in san francisco for a couple weeks or a couple weeks for a week um i just saw these scooters everywhere and apparently the locals have gotten really worked up about it and they were just banned except for like a certain number of licenses which was really small um in, in july and they were considering increasing the number of licenses after that but other areas in the bay area have not banned them and i think it's crazy to ban them honestly yes. because even if they are a little bit dangerous they are so 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 helpful for these like quote unquote last mile trips like if you just want to get one mile it's always faster to do that than get in your car yeah. and it's way faster than walking and i think this kind of stuff is like we just after need to be a certain way more point if enough people do it. it and it's less congested it's probably safer all around yeah. Yeah, that's always the thing. There's a critical mass of enough people that, that start doing other things than driving that makes drivers more safe. Yeah, so I, I actually rode one of those, the Lime the Lime scooters, the electric ones. So I was in I was in DC and I rode one around like the mall and the White House and I was I was that tourist. And I'm a I'm like a big guy, so I'm just like a already a big guy on this scooter and I was gunning it down the mall and just weaving between people. I didn't. I didn't hit anyone, but I'm sure people didn't necessarily appreciate it. I'd like to clarify. You mean the national mall, not like a retail mall? Yes, the national <laughs> mall. The national okay, mall. Good to know. Yes, <laughs> because I could see why you'd get all the funny looks. <laughs> yeah, so I went to DC and I found this really great shopping mall. Um, <laughs> Wide lanes. Yeah, <laughs> it's where I love the scooter. Um, but no, I think part of that's interesting. You're talking about. San Francisco's action on these dockless scooters um, and DC is actually I think one of the cities that's more open to they have all kinds of different dockless bikes and scooter systems there um, and Chicago is now piloting a line bike um, I guess it has a line bike pilot excuse me in the far south side of Chicago so it's, it's interesting to see all of the different cities and how they 
react to is kind of new technology offerings. Um, it's it's been it's actually quite varied in a way that I didn't necessarily this, expect. Yeah, so this might be I don't know if this is just narrow minded, but to me this is a classic example of haters. You know, like <laughs> I understand why taxi drivers don't like rideshare because they see that's cutting into their business. But line bikes popping around the city, yeah, they cause more people to be maybe on the sidewalks, but those are taking people off the streets from driving around in a car, and what is the detriment to you as a local of there being more bikes in the city? Like I, well, you're going to hit, get hit by a bike while you're walking along. But you're less likely to get hit by a car. I think that I think you're in far more danger in general. People riding bikes on the sidewalk is a lot more dangerous than walking around. Even not all of us fall every you know couple minutes. <laughs> in most in most major cities, it's like in Chicago, it's actually illegal to ride a bike as an adult on the sidewalk. So you technically should be riding on the street. So if you're getting hit by a bike on the sidewalk, then. But that's always, like, in a lot of cases, like the scooters in San Francisco, same deal. Like, you were supposed to be riding them on the street, and the big problem was people were on the sidewalk. Because people don't trust drivers, and so that means they're going to end up on the sidewalk so they don't die, and instead they're (laughs) going to hit other pedestrians. And this is like, uh, the, the whole problem is linked, obviously, and it starts with better bike lanes and isolated bike lanes and improving drivers' awareness of these people. But... It's very hard to to fix one step of the process without the rest. When I see someone get hit by a line bike, I will convert to the haters side. I'm sure you can find it if you Google it. I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> yeah, I, I guarantee. I'm sure you it's happened. Be a hater in thirty seconds. I'm sure it's happened. I remain steadfastly pro because getting hit by a bike doesn't cause the same kind of injuries that getting hit by a car does. So yeah. I think yes. that's worth taking into account. Uh, do we want to talk about? I mean, what's a talk about future technologies without bringing in Elon Musk, you know? Like, do we want to talk yeah, about it's too bad. Hyperloop and uh, what's going on with that? I don't know. We, we can't talk Elon Musk because he's so busy cranking out 5,000 cars a week <laughs> from his Tesla factory. Just can't, can't meet those production goals. He's yeah. sleeping on the floor. <laughs> um, and that, that is actually true. I don't know if you guys read that. Really? He, he wanted to feel the pain of the people at Tesla, so he slept on the floor of an office. But then he justified it to a reporter in a very Elon Musk way. He was like, I didn't need to stay here. I just wanted to make sure that my conditions were as bad as anyone's, so I slept on <laughs> the floor of my office. <laughs> Solidarity. Yeah. You know, I'll, yeah. Yeah, I'll leave that then. Um, <laughs> Instead, we'll just talk about hyperloop. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll, I was going to comment on that, but I'll leave. I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. I'll leave it lying there. Um, you leave it lying. <laughs> so just like a lime, <laughs> just like a lime bike, exactly. Although people throw those in rivers, so I won't. Uh, <laughs> I, won't I won't do that to my boy Elon. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Chicago. Actually, speaking of hyperloops and Elon Musk, Chicago actually just awarded the RFP, so they awarded the RFP to the Boring Company to build a <laughs> high-speed, which is a, 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 an incredible name for a company. Um, we should explain that that is one of Elon Musk's companies Yes, for everyone. Yeah, because they yeah. bore underground. What is an RFP? Um, oh, uh, Request for Proposal. Mm. So the city puts out, and this is generally how infrastructure projects work, is the city will put out an RFP, um, firms will respond to that RFP with a a proposed design and budget. Unfortunately, or I guess this is another discussion, but low bid pretty much always wins. Um, and so I don't I don't know the details of this of this RFP in particular, but the boring company essentially won the right to build a high speed rail from downtown Chicago to Chicago O'Hare Airport. Um, the, the, there's, there's, so there's Hyperloop, and this is just called Loop, I guess hyper Hyperloop without the Hyper, of course, because it's not gonna be as fast as the Hyperloop, which unfortunately is just incredibly confusing in Chicago because the downtown <laughs> area of Chicago is called the Loop. So yeah. I guess you just call it Loop to Loop. I, I don't know, I don't know what people will call it, but it's there's a Loop train now that'll be going to the Loop in Chicago. Um, which is a bit ridiculous, but I, I guess it's marketing. Um, so they're building it under, uh, the plan is, so it'll be under 12 minute headways, which, which means that there'll be a car leaving um, every 
Oh, no, sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. It'll take 12 minutes to get from the loop, riding the loop, to Chicago O'Hare. And the cars at peak times will leave every 30, about like, I think it was they're going to leave every 30 seconds, maybe, or something crazy like that. Um, I could, I should look that up, but it was, it was something ridiculous. And um, they're going to build it in where it's called Block 37. So a while back, Chicago had the same idea that they're going to build a kind of direct downtown O'Hare um, connector. So they built this whole station under a building that's called Block 37. And then so they built the station and then they ran out of money and didn't build the train. So there's just <laughs> an empty station down there that I think they're going to use. Which is really nice, actually. I, I appreciate that they didn't dig another hole in the ground. Um, so th- yes, theoretically, this will get people between downtown and, and O'Hare in 12 minutes, and will be like less than a, a taxi, I guess. But is this uh, this is a traditional ra- rail, right? As opposed to um, hyperloop. I- I don't know the technology necessarily behind it. I don't know if they know the technology behind oh, it. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think it'll be on a rail. It won't be like vacuum sealed ah. hyperloop. So it'll be on a rail. Um, but I think they're going to try to shoot like 125 miles per hour. Wow. Wow. So I think that was the, the aim. Um, but yeah, so they said they're going to start boring um, within like three to four months. So it should be coming. I mean, but. There's there's a lot of promises that are made that that are delayed, um, but that's the original the, the original promise is three to four months, and I think in large because it's privately financed. So that the the whole idea behind this is that the boring company would privately finance this whole thing, so the city isn't paying isn't paying for it, um, and the line is that like it doesn't cost the city anything, which always has bothered me. Not because the city's paying for the infrastructure necessarily themselves. But someone had to write the RFP and evaluate the proposals, which takes time, which time is money. So it did cost the city something. Mm-hmm. It just is, it just is negligible. But it, does, it, did <laughs> co- it did cost the city something, so I don't like when they say that. But um, the idea is that it'd be privately financed and it wouldn't cost the, the taxpayers, quote unquote. And do they think that this is an economically viable um, model for companies that aren't run by eccentric billionaires? Like in the future, yeah. So, I think there's a, there's a mixed bag with like direct airport to downtown connectors. Um, I guess the whole the whole problem is that the blue line, which currently connects O'Hare to downtown, takes about forty minutes, maybe forty five minutes, which is just which is just too long for time sensitive people, right? We're talking <laughs> about time sensitive people. Um, yes, definitely. So. The idea is that people who are more time sensitive than others would pay the extra fee or pay a higher amount to get to downtown in 12 minutes, to get to the loop via the loop um, in 12 minutes. And from my understanding, it's had mixed results. Like in London, I think it works quite well. I haven't been to London, but I'm I'm planning on going in November, so I'll get back to you on that um, with a follow-up. But... From what I understand, it works quite well in London in that it's uh, people pay for it, it's well-funded, it works. And that in Dur- and then Toronto, though, on the contrary, actually has like failed relatively miserably. Um, that they, they built this and then no one paid for it. Mm. They cut the prices in half and then people started to pay for it. Um, but it actually didn't work like they thought it would. So I, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, the, the thing I hear most often is that not everyone's going downtown, um, which I think is is fair. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people are going downtown. It's just do people want to pay however much it will be. So I don't want to I don't want to make us uh, wrap this up early and miss anything. But we have been going for a while. So do you guys have any other topics that you want to hit on before we close out? I think there's a lot of directions we could take it in terms of how transportation affects society as a whole and it's definitely worth exploring in a future podcast. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a there's a lot of impacts when you're looking at the broader implications of our trans 
transportation network, whether it's poverty or health or other topics that you might you might not think are connected, but I think are, are quite like inextricably linked. Yeah, when you think about the commute, I mean, some people spend an hour each way commuting around there. So like, you spend a significant amount of your time. It takes up a significant amount of our cities, and so it should not surprise us that it does have these impacts that go beyond just like how easy is it to get from point A to point B. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, well, with that, I think we'll close it out then. Um, thanks for talking today, guys. I think this has been a little bit different than our past podcasts, but Andrew, you've provided a, a nice dash of subject matter expertise. <laughs> this has been fun. I didn't really know anything about mass transit before this, and I have learned a lot. So with that, a uh, quick plug for the site. We had another podcast come out just a couple days ago, and also Fernando published an article, which we would recommend you go check out on syntaxproject.com. Follow us on Twitter, at syntaxproject. We tweet minimally, and uh, we try to make it funny, but you know, you can be the judge of that. <laughs> All right, thanks everyone. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us. Yeah, thank you both for having me. It was a pleasure to be on the pod. I do have I do have one more bike story if we have time for it. Oh, we have we have time. So I guess you were talking about your your point what was it point two per per minute fall ratio, <laughs> and I was thinking about me falling on a bike, and it takes this this takes us all the way back to when I was in elementary school. So I used to I don't know how you guys got to elementary school, but I used to bike to school. Sadly, and, I didn't. That'd be so oh. much cooler. And um, because. Uh, I lived in a, a suburb of, of Dallas, and everything was was fo- all the transportation network was focused around the automobile. We had to, so they built tunnels under the roads for people to, to for people to bike under, including apparently kids going to school. But the problem was on the other side of these tunnels, there's massive slopes, of course, to get up and down. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't gradual like you know you wouldn't eat like you were a second grader. <laughs> So the only, <laughs> so, so I was going to really speed up down, of course, and go through the tunnel and back up. So I was going back up and I was, it was the last tunnel before I was, before I was like free, free shot, no more tunnels getting home. And I'm, and I didn't get enough speed going down and I get to the top and I just, so I'm going up the upslope and I stall on my bike and just fall over and <laughs> my finger. And that's the only way I've ever broken a bone was through just falling over on a stalled bike. <laughs>